Welcome back to our course on reading the Bible for all it's worth. We have, uh, to, to remind you of where we're at in the process, we've been talking about our POIMA process, P-O-I-M-A. So we've talked about preparation. We've, uh, we're, we're just getting ourselves ready to hear the voice of God through the scripture that we're reading. We've talked about observation, where we're going to look and stare at a passage longer than we think is necessary to see not just what it means, but try to first start with what does the text actually say? Uh, what's God saying here? Uh, we are, in a minute, uh, in future sessions, going to move into interpretation, uh, meditation, and then application. And we're going to get to all those. But what we're going to kind of do now is sort of a bridge between the O and the A. Um, and really, this is kind of a subset of the observation before we get into the interpretation. And what we're going to do here is acknowledge that the Bible is a very diverse book. And we want to pay attention to the genres that were used in creating uh, the scripture. And so we've talked about this already in our first sessions about how the Bible is both a divine book and a human book. Divine because it comes from the mouth of God. It, it contains his eternal truth. It has a, the authority of the voice of God, all those things. But at the same time, it's a human book in that God wrote it with specific people, to specific people in specific settings, using specific cultural norms. So we've seen some of how that's played out. Um, but what we're going to do now is really dig in uh, in these next two sessions. So this one, we're going to talk about the Old Testament genres. I got five that we're going to go f- go through and then a few New Testament genres that we're going to look at. And basically what we do here is we're seeing, okay, again, the authority of God comes through each of these genres, but it's so vital as we get ready to interpret and as we observe and see what's really here and what's not, as we observe what's really here to pay attention to the fact that this is a genre written in a certain kind of a way. And so in order to do that, we're going to just start marching through. So I'm going to start with narrative. Our first Old Testament genre is narrative. And with each of these uh, genres, I'm going to give us a example. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to literally read um, a passage of scripture for you. Um, If you want to like grab your Bible, look it up, read along, that's great. Um, But what I'll do is I'll read, read the example so you get a feel for what it's like. And then I'll, I'll kind of refer to it back as we are talking through this. But, um, we're just going to use that as an example for each time. So uh, Genesis 4, and I'm going to go verses 1 through 16. Now, it's kind of long, so just hang with me. It's the word of God. Let's hear it. Uh, Genesis 4, verse 1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you and you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who find him should attack him. 
Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. All right, so there you go. There's a pretty typical biblical example of a narrative, okay? And much of the Old Testament is written in narrative. So kind of how, how does narrative work? Here's some features of narrative, the narrative genre in scripture. So first of all, narrative tells stories, okay? Um, so now, as soon as I use the word story, I think some people get concerned that we're saying, oh, this is fictional, right? The, the concept of story doesn't say anything about it being literal or fictional, right? Um, point is, narrative tells a story, whether it actually happened or not, okay? So what we're saying is like this, this story with Cain and Abel, this happened, this is non, non-fiction, right? But it still is a story, it's a narrative. So to understand these passages, you have to kind of enter into the story, right? Um, you can't understand the meaning of the story apart from the story itself, okay? So when we tell the story of Cain and Abel, yes, there are theological truths embedded and related to this story, but the first and primary duty that we have is to take the story as a story. Try to try to picture yourself there and all those kinds of things, okay? Number two, narrative shows more than it tells, okay? This is actually a, a function of all art, and narrative is sort of an art form in that sense. Um, it shows more than it tells, right? A story embodies like history and truth, and so narrative isn't going to typically come out and just say what it wants you to know. Um, the story is meant to be like experienced, right? The value of the story comes by reflecting on the story and the experience that that story offers, okay? So when we look at, like, we ask the question, like, what, is, what does this story mean? That's a good question to ask. We have to do it, but we have to look at the details of the story rather than just, like, a direct statement that the narrator makes, right? Now, sometimes the narrator will say, you know, give, give like, a moral to the story and sum it up, and that's so helpful for us interpreting, especially when it comes to Scripture. Um, but our, our primary duty, our primary task is to sit back and um, and just watch and see um, what's in the story, what's happening here, how does the narrative unfolding? That's how we're going to find it. It shows us something more than it tells us something, okay? Now, similarly to that, we could say a narrative describes, describes more than it prescribes, okay? So you see a character performing an action, and like the first initial reaction shouldn't be to just imitate it, right? When we see Abel, or when we see Cain, our first reaction shouldn't be immediately, let's do what they did, because not every story is meant to uh, be worthy of imitation, okay? And so even in this story, Cain and Abel, we see one seems in some ways worthy of imitation, another one seems not worthy of imitation, but we still have to wrestle with like what what specifically um, is worthy of imitation or not in, in the story. And so it's describing, it's not prescribing immediately, um, okay, so we have to look at the context, we have to look at the tone, we have to look at the larger theological framework of the Bible and of the book that we're reading to decide whether or not the action is worth emulating for ourselves. And then here's an important one um, that, that I like to say, passages, um, narrative passages are written for us, but they're not written to us or about us. And I hope that distinction makes sense. I think it's really important. Narrative passages are written for us, but they're not written to us or about us. Okay, so we have to be careful not to immediately identify ourselves with like one specific character, right? They, like the whole Bible is for us, like God's, you know, written it for our benefit. We're not the direct people that the stories were given to. Um, we're not the direct audience of it. You know, in, in, in this case, like we're talking Old Testament Israel as they, um, you know, are entering the promised land. These are the ones that Genesis was written to. And so it's not written necessarily to us and it's not about us. So don't be careful about identifying too much with one specific character, at least not initially. Um, and then just, we got to understand the cultural historical elements that are involved. Okay. So that, those are just some kind of tips to understand basically the the nature of narrative passages in the Bible. So now let me give you some tips for, um, reading these narrative passages. 
So a few tips I want to give us. Okay, first of all, read narrative passages theologically, not moralistically. And I don't know how that strikes you right away. I, again, think this is another really important distinction to make. Um, What we've often done is we've read narrative passages moralistically. Okay, so we read the story of Joseph and, you know, we see, you know, I don't know, something with like Potiphar's wife and we see him resisting uh, maybe temptation or resisting her, you know, sinful advances. And um, and then we, we create a moral to the story and whatever. I, I think what happens often is we, we kind of read these like Aesop's fables and we take them to, to teach a certain point and we kind of reduce the story to that one point. There are morals throughout all these narrative passages. There are things that we can and should learn. But, but rather than starting with be a Joseph or something, um, we want to read it in a bigger theological framework, meaning what does this passage reveal about God? What does this passage reveal about humanity? What does this passage reveal about the nature of salvation or the nature of forgiveness or those kinds of things? So we're, we're not just saying, um, here's what happened, therefore this is how we should behave today. We're saying, here's what happened. What does this show us about who God is, how he works with human beings, all those kinds of things. So we want to, our starting point we want to be, we were going to read these narrative passages theologically and not moralistically. Uh, morals are good. Moralism is kind of a different thing where it's all about our behavior and and acting a certain way. And so um, we want to, we definitely want to be careful in how we do this whole thing and learn about God. So the theological approach recognizes God's the center character in every Old Testament narrative, uh, every New Testament narrative too, right? So whether he's mentioned or not, every character resi- exists in some sort of relationship to God. So as we watch the uh, the drama of the, this passage unfold, we should ask, like, what can we learn about God by the way he acts in the story, the way he's neglected or affronted in the story, um, how his stated purposes are being furthered or apparently hindered, those kinds of things. So, I mean, honestly, we could, we could say something about true worship from this passage in Genesis 4 that we read. We could learn, you know, about the nature of those things. Obviously, we could say, like, murder is not a good thing. We also learn a ton about God and how gracious he is, right? In, instead of just wiping Cain away for his murder of his brother, God deals with him very graciously. And so we, we learn um, the nature of God, not just uh, his holiness, but also his compassion and his forgiveness and, and, and something about the bigger plan that he's carrying forward as well. Uh, the second thing that we need to do, a tip for, for reading these Old Testament narrative passages, is we want to identify the setting that it's in, okay? So, like, there's these old myths um, about the creation of the world, and, and different cultures have different ones. Um, you know, you could think of something like the Epic of Gilgamesh as an old one, and um, and there's this, you know, massive kind of flood that, that you know, it, it, there's all these, like, big picture things, these big actors, these big gods, but there's never really that concrete of a setting in, in, in those. Um, there's a, a, a blank background or an imaginary backdrop to the whole thing. The interesting thing with biblical narratives is they take place in the real world, right? Real time, real people, real places. Um, and so identifying like when and where a story takes place helps us sort through a lot of the other elements that we're going to identify. Uh, similar to that is the third one, identify and assess important characters. Okay, so as we're going through here, you know, we're taking stock who the characters. So here we have Obviously, God is a key character. We have Abel. We have Cain. Um, there's some kind of distant characters, like people that are going to encounter Cain after God has sent him away. And so, who who are these characters? Who who in the story seems to be portrayed as heroes, and who seems to be portrayed as villains? Um, or which characters are kind of ambiguous or difficult to pinpoint? I I find that with Samson, for example, sometimes it's kind of difficult to pinpoint: is he a hero or a villain, or or maybe some combination of the two, right? Um, and in in that vein, like if there's not a clearly defined like good guy in the story, ask 
Why? Why is the story being told in that way? You know, maybe the whole point is just to point us to God and his power. Okay. So we're going to assess characters. Number four, we're going to trace the plot of the narrative. So what's happening in the story? What's, what's the setting at the beginning? What conflict enters that we have to address in there that has to be addressed in the story? Um, how does the conflict element get addressed ultimately? How does it get resolved? Um, what's the outcome of the whole thing? And so a lot of these you know, basic storytelling things, it's so helpful to see in the narrative. And again, it's not saying these are mythological or untrue, but it is saying paying attention to the elements of story in a story that's being told helps kind of reveal what's actually there. Um, another thing to watch out for, we're going to watch for repetition. So often there are phrases, events, actions repeated throughout um, a story. Okay, so whenever we see repeated concepts or actions, we know narr- the narrator is trying to emphasize something. They, we'll see this in all the genres, but they didn't have, when they wrote these down, uh, paper was uh, precious. Okay, and a lot of it was originally done in an oral society. So they're not bolding, italicizing, bullet pointing. Um, when they want to make a point, when they want to emphasize, repetition is their main tool. And so when we see things repeated, and we see even in this Genesis 4, we see different key elements repeated, and so we pay attention to what those are. Uh, A few more I want to point out with regard to narrative. Uh, We we want to look for comparisons and contrasts in the story. Okay, so seeing how different things are juxtaposed often helps, right? Characters are often compared, contrasted in literature, and that's certainly true the Bible. Like when you see two characters placed next to each other, we want to ask, like, how do they compare to each other? And so in, in the example we just did, uh, Cain and Abel, what's similar? What's different about them? Um, you know, what's different about the sacrifice or why they did those sacrifices and how they responded to them and those kinds of things? Um, they're set next to each other so that we can compare and contrast them. Another another example I find interesting of this is uh, from Joshua 1 to 7. So that the first like seven chapters of Joshua, you have two characters that I think are really being contrasted. Um, and in, in seminary, you know, I read textbooks that kind of highlighted these distinctions and thought, well, I, I wouldn't have noticed this had I not seen um, the, the, uh, the idea of comparison and contrast. So they, the two characters are Achan and Rahab. So Rahab, if you remember, she's the one that uh, the spies came into the promised land and um, Rahab is this prostitute in this Gentile nation, and she hides the spies and sends them out. And um, Achan um, later is an Israelite who takes foreign gods and hides them, and um, ultimately God like punishes Israel and then him and his family specifically because of it. So the par- comparisons, the contrast, like we see with Rahab, she's a Canaanite. She has uh, not witnessed the acts of God directly, but she seems to kind of know, and so she fears God, right? So she hide God's, hides God's spies up on her rooftop when people come looking for him. And then when Jerusalem is destroyed, she's spared along with her house, even though the city is burned. All the cattle, sheep, donkeys, like the whole city is destroyed. And then she becomes like the Israelites, right? Where, where like she becomes like part of this conquering nation, the Israelites, and one of God's people. So there's that whole thing about Rahab. Similarly, but differently, Achan is an Israelite who has witnessed, like has witnessed the acts of God. But he doesn't fear him. So, you know, Rahab hasn't seen God act, but she fears him. Achan has seen God act, does not fear him. He hides stolen loot under his tent, including these gods and things like that, when he was specifically told not to. Um, And so, you know, Rahab's hiding spies on her rooftop. Uh, Achan is hiding uh, stolen loot under his tent, right? Um, When Achan is discovered, like God has him killed, his his tent is burned, all his cattle, sheep, donkeys are destroyed, right? So you can see the parallels between the stories. Um, and whereas 
Rahab was this Gentile woman who becomes like one of the Israelites who is saved while these Canaanite nations who have been rebelling against God are destroyed. Achan is like one of God's people, but he ends up being treated like one of the pagan Canaanites, and he he and his possessions and everything is wiped out. And so all, all I'm saying is not that this is like your daily quiet time where you're just like mind is being blown. All I'm saying is all these things are there, and I think they're very intentional in how God wrote them down. And so paying attention to comparisons, contrasts can help us a lot. And just seeing how different characters interact, it really helps us get behind uh, what's really happening in these stories. Um, two more. One is look for interpretive elements added by the author. And this is helpful. Sometimes we don't get anything. Sometimes we don't get any interpretation from the author. But sometimes the author gives like a purpose statement to the story. Um, sometimes he'll give a pronouncement on one of the characters saying this person's good or evil or something. You see that a lot in um, First and Second Kings. Um, we'll ask, you know, does the, the author repeat a phrase that would help us understand the events taking place? So, for example, you read through Judges and you keep hearing the people did what was right in their own eyes. And uh, those things are helpful in kind of understanding what's happening in the story. And then, you know, questions like, if a story that we're reading seems kind of out of place within its context, there probably is a reason for that, okay? So pinpointing, like, these out-of-place elements, like, it, it helps us to identify why the author chose to include the story here and basically what he wants us to see in the overall thing. Um, so interestingly, the story of Joseph, it goes from Genesis 37 to 50. That's a big chunk. It's all about Joseph. But Genesis 38, right after he started the Joseph story, there's this deviation in the Joseph story that comes to Judah, and we see him acting basically pretty shamefully, and yet God's still working with his nation. And so we ask the question, okay, how does then Judah's story compare with Joseph's story overall, and why is this being highlighted here? What is it trying to be shown to us with all those kinds of things? Okay, and then the last element as we talk about uh, narrative passages. Simply ask why God chose to record this story and how we ought to be changed by it. So just because the passage is written for us, but not to us or about us, it's, it's still, we're saying it's written for us. There's some change or some invitation that God's inviting us into that he wants us to experience. He wants our lives to look and feel different on the basis of having read and internalized these narratives. And so asking God, how do you want to affect my life with this story? Um, let it live in my imagination and shape the way that I think and act. Um, those are the right kinds of questions. Okay, so there you go. Those are um, some kind of features of narrative and some tips for reading narrative. Um, I'll let you wrestle with those and process it, but anytime you're reading a lot of these narrative passages in the Old Testament, I'm hopeful this will kind of help you frame uh, not only as you how you interpret what it means, but also to be in that observation phase, just saying what's really here, and it helps you look for things like contrasts and key characters and things like that. All right, let's move on. We're going to go to the second Old Testament genre, which is law. Okay, a lot of the Old Testament is legal literature or law. Okay, and our example for that is going to be in Leviticus 19. And I'm just going to read Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. Um, there are so many uh, passages in the Old Testament, legal passages. This is just sort of representative. And so I'm going to read this for you. Leviticus 19, verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. All right, now that's short and sweet, and there's all kinds of things there, but um, and there's all kinds of different laws and everything all around this, um, but I give these as, as, as an example that I'm going to refer to as we kind of walk through this. So 
let's first talk about, again, some features of legal literature. All right. Um, literature, like legal literature gives us and explains to us laws. Okay. That's like basically what it is. And, and these are like set in a, in a context and everything else. But there's over 600 laws in the Pentateuch. Pentateuch being the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Most of those come like in the second half of Exodus through Deuteronomy is basically where we get a lot of this um, legal literature. Okay. Um, and so th- these laws, so first of all, like this is what it's about. It's about these laws. It's governing the life of Israel. And so the second thing we have to pay attention to is the fact that these laws are given in a specific setting, okay? The, the law was given under the mo- what we call the Mosaic Covenant, okay? So it's when God led his people out of Israel and he goes up, like Moses goes up on the Mount Sinai and God's just delivered his people from 400 years of slavery. And he's saying, this is what it looks like for you to be my people. And so he gives them these laws that are going to shape the life of his people that he's rescued and redeemed and is doing something with, okay? And so this is under this Mosaic covenant. So Moses delivered the law uh, to the people. The people were promised that if they obeyed these laws, they'd be blessed. They were also promised that if they disobeyed, they'd be cursed and sent into exile. Okay, so Israel then entered into this agreement with God, this covenant with God, and these laws are connected with that covenant. So uh, similar to, to narrative, right? These stories are for us, but not to us or about us. I would say the exact same thing about these um, these legal passages. It's written for us for sure. It, it, our benefit, our edification, um, understanding the nature of God, but these are not laws that are directly given to us. They're given to people under this Mosaic covenant, okay? Because here's the thing. We are now, uh, we who live in this like New Testament world, we're now living under the new covenant, what's called the new covenant. So Hebrews goes to great lengths um, explaining how Jesus himself has fulfilled the Old Testament law. Okay. And so that old covenant Hebrews says is now obsolete, like actually uses the word obsolete. And so, um, so the law is important, right? But it's no longer this like living active, um, legal document in the same way that it was for old Testament Israel. It's, it's living and active because it's the word of God, right? But it's not giving us directly laws, um, to, that we need to follow in the same way. So we, we now live under like our allegiances to Christ, right? Not to the old Testament law directly. And so Jesus and the New Testament writers, they like definitely give us commands to obey. Um, some of those commands line up with Old Testament commands still, and that's great. Um, but we're not o- obeying the Old Testament law directly, okay? Jesus himself, when he was here and taught and everything, became the authoritative and final interpreter of the law. So basically, following his interpretation on the law as he passes on to us is exactly like where we should stand today. Um, and so there's tricky things with all that, right? But that just kind of helps frame the whole thing and how we understand it. It's going to teach us a lot, um, but it's not necessarily the same thing as like, these are the laws that I have to um, follow directly. So the third thing here, these laws are given for a specific reason, okay? And this is really important. So God gave these laws because he was going to be living in their midst through the tabernacle and the temple, right? So here's here's God saying like, I'm going to come to earth and like his glory and presence was living on earth in the midst of them in the tabernacle, in the temple, in a unique way. And so he was showing through all this, the distinct nature of like his people, right? If I'm going to live in the midst of a group of people, they had better behave like this because I'm a holy God. And so that's how all that came to to be. So because of that though, what's beautiful is that all of these laws hint at theology, okay? And we may we may or may not be able to understand precisely why or how each is the case, right? But, um, but it gives us this sense of, you know, we, we learn who God is through these laws, and, and we learn something of his design for humanity through these laws, even though it's not necessarily um, the covenant that we're under, 
Okay, so we'll explore this further by stepping in the next section. So that was the kind of the, the features of legal literature, the law. Now let's talk about some tips for reading um, the law, the Old Testament law. Okay, so first of all, we want to identify which kind of law is being described. Now, these, this is a little bit artificial, but I think it, it, it's been helpful for me. I think it'd be helpful for you. We can't push these distinctions too far, but there's different kinds of laws. So there's, there's what we call absolute laws, and then there's uh, case laws, okay? So absolute laws, man, they apply like across the board and give overriding principles. So think of things like in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, there's this law, you shall not murder, okay? That's an absolute law. It, like, just don't, don't murder people, right? That's broad and universal, right? Um, but on the other hand, there's these case laws that give specific examples, and it kind of functions like, um, you know, precedents in our, our, like, American judicial system to help judges decide how to rule in different cases, right? So, like, Exodus 21, for example, you can read a whole section on what do you do when one beast butts or gores another beast, okay? And so, yeah, if you have a, a ox that gores or, or, or injures some other animal, here's how you handle that. Now, that, that definitely helps you if you have that exact case, right? But it also gives you some precedents that you could follow to do similar or related types of issues, okay? So to read through, we can kind of wrestle with, is that, does this feel more like an absolute law or does it feel more like a case law? And again, like I said, don't press the distinction too far, but it definitely helps us to kind of see, um, you know, what's, what's, uh, there's just different kinds of things. All right. Another, another point here is as we do that, that helps us then look for principles that are present in the law, right? So like, you know, what, what kind of principles could you glean from the idea of like, you know, beasts budding and goring in Exodus 21, right? You, you might, you might pull some principles from that of like, you know, something about stewardship, you know, handling your, your stuff well. Um, there might be some principles about loving your neighbor. There might be some principles about justice, right? And so we can kind of read into those. Or to use our example from Leviticus 19, right? We read about, um, you know, when you're gleaning your field, don't glean it right up to the edges, right? So um, here we get a little bit of help because it actually tells us why. Like, why, why not Why not pull every bit of fruit that that vineyard of yours produced? And God tells them, you got to leave some for the poor and for the sojourner, right? So these, these exiles, these people that are traveling through, um, leave some for them, people that it can't afford. Um, it, this is kind of how God is going to provide for people who are poor and hurting in society is everyone's just going to like, yes, reap your harvest, but don't go crazy with it. Make sure there's some left over for people who are in need so that the stuff that God has blessed you with is also intended to bless and care for the people around you. He pretty much says that specifically uh, in, in the passage. Um, we could probably glean, uh, no pun intended, glean that concept from the passage even if he hadn't made that statement. And so this is it. We're looking for principles and stuff like that, okay? So after we've identified which kind of law is being described, the second thing we want to do is picture what a society governed by these laws would look like. I mean, that's a beautiful thought experiment, right? So God, God wanted his people to look different. Um, and so we want to just ask, the, ask, like, man, how would this specific law make this people look different? I mean, what would a society be like where people are not gleaning every last bit of their field and you can picture poor people walking and getting the food that they need by simply walking property to property. Would that, would that provide like a relational uh, element in it? Um, would it provide some connections people to people? Would people see directly how their land and their produce is caring for people who are in need? Might they find other needs that they can meet through that process? Um, so what would it look like if this law took took shape in a society? What would that society look like? Okay, and then you know as we read through, you read several of these laws. What's the cumulative effect of all these laws together? Now, what would it look like?
Uh, similarly, instead of just picturing a society that looks like this, third third uh, recommendation would be try to feel what it would look like to live under these laws. So think of yourself as an Israelite reading these laws. What would it feel like? Because um, here's the here's the theological truth about this. Part of the overall message of the Old Testament, the, the New Testament makes this clear. Part of the overall theological message of the Old Testament is that human beings cannot please God, cannot keep the entire law. That's just a a reality. And so. What would be on your mind if you had to try to keep all of these laws, right? What would it feel like to fail in one of these laws? What would be on your mind as you failed? And so these are, are great questions. I mean, things like all the sacrifices that are offered, what would it be like to make these sacrifices? How would that feel? What would that make you think about God or yourself or, or anything? So great, great questions to ask. Um, number four, we might ask what each law might tell us about the God who gave it. And this is great. This is thinking theologically about these legal passages. So what is it about God's character that would make this kind of a law important as he directed his people? Man, such a great question to ask. Um, You know, most of the law says a lot about his holiness, but some laws reveal his mercy and his provision for the poor, like we saw in, in Leviticus 19. And then lastly, the last tip for reading the law here is just meditate on how that law is fulfilled in Jesus. So now this is zooming out again, right? But we get this law and then we can zoom out and just say, man, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. We're told that specifically in the New Testament. So how does this law come to ultimate fruition in Jesus? How did he fulfill that? What a beautiful thought to picture um, how Jesus is presented in narrative passages. And now we're seeing how Jesus is presented in these legal passages, uh, things that are often very dry points in our Bible reading if we're trying to get through the whole Bible, but to see, man, this is revealing something about who God actually is. All right, so there you go. There's some tips and features of uh, reading the law, the Old Testament law, basically Exodus through Deuteronomy. Now, third genre, we're at third out of five, so we're getting there, we're doing good. Third genre is poetry, and um, it is amazing how much of the Old Testament is poetry. And so for this, I'm going to go with a, a great example. I'm going to read for you Psalm 46, one of my favorite psalms, definitely. And, um, and it just has a lot of the representative elements that we see in poetic passages. So I'm going to read for you here Psalm 46, the whole thing. It's not very long. So it, it starts, as many of them do, with this um, um, script at the top. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be, roar, be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Man, what a beautiful uh, passage, right? Now here, here as we kind of zoom back from that, that's a great representative of what poetry is like in the Old Testament. The Psalms are a big piece of it, but here's what's crazy. Poetry makes up like actually a third of the Bible. 
So you think of that whole big Bible sitting on your shelf or you know by your by your favorite reading chair. And that whole big Bible, a third of it is poetry, okay? So what we can glean from that is that, man, God values this form of expression. Now, here's the problem with the modern readers is we often have um, an uneasy relationship to poetry. In fact, there's this book that I uh, recently read uh, called um, Enjoying the Bible. And his point is we often as modern readers tend to have a hard time with the Bible, many parts of it, because we... Uh, as modern, you know, Americans, we tend to hate poetry, right? We don't give ourselves to reading much poetry. We're not in that mode. We just kind of want want someone to tell us what it is. Tell us what's right. Tell us what's true. Tell us what to do. Um, let's boil it all down. Let's not waste our time. But poetry is a whole different type of expression than that. It's uh, it's inherently contemplative. It's meant to get us to slow down. It's meant to get us to ponder. Um, it's meant to get us to rustle because it's not telling us exactly what to think. It's helping us to ponder. So. Here's some features of poetry. So first of all, poetry follows a highly structured form of communication, okay? So in regular speech, we just talk and it's kind of flow of consciousness, but poetry is very structured. And so, you know, often there's rhyming, uh, not, not typically so much in, uh, in Old Testament poetry, but sometimes, um, but there's, there's, you know, the number of syllables that are there, the rhythms and the cadences of it, the, the things, uh, the figures of speech that it uses. So a uh, highly structured form of communication. It means it takes some thought to put down and it takes some thought to, uh, to read it well. Uh, the second feature is that poetry works primarily through figures of speech, okay? Primarily through fi- figures of speech. And so in, what we can see in Psalm 46, right, what it's doing is it's telling us something about God, but it's calling him a refuge and a strength. Um, it's using images of rivers and uh, raging nations, tottering kingdoms, um, uh, melting earth, right? Um, waters that roar and foam, mem- mountains that tremble and swell. So all of these figures of speech to get us to some simple recognition of a God who is there for us, a God who will do right by us, a God who um, loves and protects, but is also, you know, great and fearful and all these kinds of things. So um, poetry, poetry works primarily through these figures of speech. And then third, and this is very important, poetry helps us to feel more than to know. And I don't know how that strikes you. There was a point in my life where that might have been kind of controversial, but I think it's deeply true. Poetry helps us to feel more than to know. Now, here's the thing. Of course, poetry helps us to know, okay? So it is giving us truths about God. There are things that we are to know about God. But more than that, I mean, honestly, if God just wanted us to know, he would have... He could have just done Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. A little bit poetic, but not even that much. And so we could have just gone with, hey, God's there if you need him. Um, Just make sure you call out if you need anything, okay? Like that's what he could have done. But he gives all of these pictures of rivers and mountains and kingdoms and, and all of these pictures in an effort to help us feel it, right? Think of Psalm 23, this beautiful example. He could have just said, hey, God's going to take care of you, right? But instead he talks about, you know, God is being our shepherd and leading us to these still waters and, and these, these calm pastures and in and, and his hand of provision and guidance through the valley of the shadow of death. All of this is meant to make us feel. And so does God value our emotions? 100%. I can say that with 100% confidence because God put a third of his revelation to human beings. When he said, what do I need these people to no, what do I need to give them to help them be who I've called them to be? A third of it he spoke poetically through people. And that poetry is in getting us to engage our imaginations. It's getting us to engage our feelings, all those kinds of things.
Okay, so that's what poetry is like. What are some tips for reading it? Um, so first of all, focus on the imagery that's used. Remember we said it's, it's primarily figures of speech. So what are the images that are used? Visualize the pictures being painted. Okay, so sit here and think um, about a ocean that is roaring, right? Um, think about ma- mountains that are quaking and trembling. Like what? Like sit in that imagery and just picture it. What would it be like to see it, to feel it, to experience it, to be standing on that mountain, to be standing at the base of it? What would it be like to look out over that ocean that's roaring or to be is trying to swim in the middle of it, right? Um, so focus on the imagery. Feel what the author wants you to feel in doing it. And then from there, what we want to do second is look for poetic elements and structure. And I'll just give you like a few different examples of this. And, and you don't need to know anything technical to enjoy the poetry that God's given us. Um, but here's some things that kind of sh- like tend to show up quite a bit that can help you in giving you some categories to assess. So first of all, parallelism. Uh, parallelism is, is when there's like two or more lines that come together as units. All right. So most poetry uses this parallel structure. So the lines that maybe they're synonymous, right? Maybe it's saying the same thing twice. So for example, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That's pretty much a parallel thing. It's, it's saying the same thing, right? Um, but maybe maybe the parallel lines develop a thought further, right? Maybe it goes on to explain something that wasn't said in the first line, right? Maybe the two illustrate each other. Maybe the two contrast with one another. We see a lot of that in Proverbs, as a matter of fact. And so just seeing, asking the question of how do these two things relate to each other, great question to ask and, um, and really important to kind of wrestle with. So that's parallelism. You'll see that in almost any poetry. Next, you have um, acrostics, okay? And this is, this is an interesting form. It feels very gratuitous to me, very unnecessary. But it's actually not uncommon for Hebrew poetry to use acrostics as we read through the Old Testament, okay? So sometimes what that means is that like literally every line starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 111 and 112 are written like that, where every line starts with a diff- like the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's crazy. Um, sometimes there, it means like every verse starts with a successive letter of the alphabet. So Psalm 25, Psalm 34, Psalm 145 work like that, where each verse it starts with a successive letter of the alphabet. Um, other times it means that there's a chunk of verses all starting with the same letter and working through the alphabet in that way. And that's, that's how Psalm 119 works. I don't know if you've ever read Psalm 119 and you see like, my goodness, this chapter is so long. It's because there's these whole chunks that all start with the... Hebrew letter Aleph, which is like A, right? And then the next chunk starts all with Beit, which is the letter B. And so they, they just works through the entire Hebrew alphabet like that as it goes through. Um, Lamentations 1 through 4 um, is, is acrostic in how it works. Proverbs 31, 10 to 31 uh, is acrostic in how it functions. And so um, it's just something that gets employed from time to time. And it, what I love about that, what's beautiful about that is how absolutely unnecessary it is, right? Like what what is that teaching us theologically? How is that practically helping us? Um, but what I think it shows is God cares about beauty. God cares about, um, you know, memorabilia, uh, memorability, right? Like we, he wants us to be able to remember the thing and, and he wants it to to be crafted and cared for. And I think it's just beautiful, right? Um, to just to just think, okay, these these truths of God were cra- crafted not just through the figures of speech, but also even through how it's structured. Okay, but having said that, the third element we're going to look at is figures of speech, okay? 
So identify what figures of speech are there. Do your best to kind of like figure out what's going on with those figures of speech. Okay, it can be difficult because we're foreign to the original language and to the culture. Um, but most of the time, right, it's not too hard to think of what a roaring sea conjures up in our minds or, or tottering mountains or those kinds of things. We want to keep an eye open also for hyperbole. Okay, so a hyperbole is an intentional overstatement, an exaggeration to make a point. Um, okay, so it basically hyperbole uh, it makes its non-literal nature clear. Okay, um, it, because like you can see like what's happening. Okay, and so you you, you know like often the the poetic elements are very overdramatic. Like God, I'm about to be destroyed, and um, and you know my enemies like there's not a single one who loves the Lord, or my you know my enemies are mounting against me, and there's just this drastic overstatement. Usually we can see that's true. Maybe in some cases it's literally true. But again, feel what the author wants you to feel. Why, why is it being raised to this level? Um, and so there's great examples throughout the scripture of these kinds of things, of heightening the, the force of the statement by exaggerating what's happening. Then uh, we can look for other types of figures of speech like personification, anthropomorphism, or zoomorphism. Okay, so you don't need to know about these terms at all, but I'll just kind of share what they are so that you can kind of watch for them. But personification means like there's a non-human entity that's being spoken of as having as having human attributes. Okay, and so, you know, so you might get a picture of, um, you know, like a... Um, trees clapping their hands or something like that. Okay, that's personification. You're taking something non-human and personifying it. Make it like it's a person, okay? Um, in anthropomorphism, anthropomorphism is God being spoken of as having human characteristics, okay? And so we we read and it's God, you know, um, talking like a human, um, God having hands, you know, God, um, God, you know, carrying or walking with or those kinds of things, right? It's, it's God who is spirit being spoken of as though he's human. And so those kinds of elements are interesting. Um, and then there's zoomorphism. Okay. It's, it's God being described using animal characteristics. All right. And also like, um, characteristics of inanimate objects sometimes. And so zoomorphism would be like, you know, God, um, you know, covers us under the shadow of his wing, those kinds of things. Okay. God's not a bird. We understand this, but it's a figure of speech that, so uh, the categories aren't important. All I'm trying to say is figures of speech like this, just dig into it, uh, see what's happening, see what's going on, pay attention to these things. This is kind of in the observation phase of what is being said in this text, knowing some of these things to look out for can help us be better observers of it. Okay. And then sometimes there's um, representation happening. Um, like when, you know, the, the whole of something is being represented by a part of that thing. So, you know, think of saying, I, uh, this is super lame now, but like, hey, nice set of wheels you got there. If you're talking about someone's car, um, you're, you're, the wheels stand in for the whole car. Okay. And there's things like that that happen in the, um, in the Old Testament. You know, might, you might uh, have David referred to. Um, when it's really a reference to the whole king, the, you know, the kingdom of Israel or Israel itself or, or those kinds of things. Lastly, last tip for reading uh, this poetic literature is to consider the overall impact of the poetic passage. I, I, don't, I would just say I don't think we've interpreted or even observed a passage of poetry if we haven't considered the overall poetic effect, okay? Because it's really, it's more than what the individual words are literally conveying to us. It's more than any one image can convey. It's reading something like Psalm 46, taking all of these images, all of these statements together, and just kind of sitting back after we've read it and pondering and saying, 
what did that just do to me? How did that just affect me? Okay. And so considering how the message itself, the figures of speech used to convey that message, the artistic structure of the poetry, watch how they all interact to kind of heighten the impact of the poetry. And then recognize, man, God put it like that on purpose. That's why he did it that way. And so we, we are, um, we're better as individual Christians if we pay attention to what God's doing, if we get a chance to teach or preach, we get an opportunity to help other people experience the truth that God's put in his word through the direct statements and also all of these artistic indirect elements all around it. So there you go. There's some features and tips for reading poetic literature. Two more to go um, before we jump into New Testament genres in the next session, um, which will be a little bit shorter, I think. Um, but here we go. For prophetic prophetic literature is our fourth, okay? And so prophetic for, for prophetic literature, I'm going to use an example of Isaiah chapter 5. Um, I love the book of Isaiah, um, and it is a, this Isaiah 5 is a great example of some of the things that you see in, um, in, in uh, pr- prophetic literature. So I'm going to read, I'm just deciding here, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Uh, Isaiah 5, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? What I, uh, when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall, be pruned, uh, it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they uh, rain, uh, that no rain, sorry, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And then it continues on like this for a very long time. So here we have um, a pretty typical example of prophetic literature. Okay, and so how do we understand prophetic literature? I mean, we're we're talking like, um, you know, anything from... um, Anything from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the, the minor prophets like Hosea, Joel, Obadiah, Amos, those kinds of things. I mean, there's so much in here. So much of the Bible is that. And um, so here's some features. Only a tiny percentage of prophecy deals with events that are still future to us. Okay, I hope that makes sense. Because I think when we think of prophetic literature, we primarily think of what's coming in the future, prophesying What's coming maybe when the world's getting ready to end? But here's the reality. When we talk about Old Testament prophetic literature, we're talking about a tiny percentage that deals with events that are still future to us. So consider this. Less than 2% of prophecy in the Old Testament prophesies about the Messiah. All right? Now, we think often Jesus did fulfill so many Old Testament prophecies, but less than 2% of the prophecies are about the Messiah. 
less than 5% of prophetic literature prophesies about the new covenant age as a whole. Okay, so that means like not just about the Messiah or Jesus specifically, but the whole new covenant age uh, in which we're living, in which Jesus has come and, and made the Old Testament law obsolete, some of those things we talked about. Less than 5% of all of the Old Testament prop- prophetic literature is about that age at all. Okay, and then this is obviously a little bit subjective, but less than 1% prophesies about events that are yet to occur. Basically, less than 1% prophesies about things that are like the very end of the world, those kinds of things, when God ultimately returns, not just about Christ. So think of that. And even if you add all those together, right, that's a small percentage of what's in this overall large body of prophetic literature, okay? So... Uh, The second point is the vast majority of Old Testament prophecy speaks to Israel or Judah about their sin, calls them to repentance, and speaks of the judgment they will experience. And sometimes, sometimes there's talk about restoration as well. So this is huge. Okay, when you read prophetic literature, you might come with an expectation that it's going to tell us something about what's going to happen with a rapture or a tribulation or something like that. And the reality is the vast majority is about um, Old Testament Israel. And them being called back from their sin, them being recalled, called to return to the Lord, them being warned about judgment that's coming to them. And sometimes there's promises of a restoration that they'll experience at the end of that. Now, that's huge because it changes what we expect this to be about, and it begins to help us understand what's really being said, okay? Um, now, there are some Old Testament prophecies that are directed towards other nations to warn about the consequences of their sin. Um, and, and so sometimes that comes like, like Ezekiel as a whole is... Um, directed towards uh, the nation of Israel, but then there's chunks like around Ezekiel 35 where um, where like they're, um, it, it switches to talk about some of the other nations around them. That happens. Um, but sometimes whole books are directed that way. So Obadiah and Nahum are directed to these foreign nations. Uh, Jonah, we see, is sent to this foreign nation in Nineveh. And so uh, most of it, almost all of it, is to the nation of Israel or Judah. Like Israel and Judah was the one kingdom of Israel, but eventually they, um, as they fell away from the Lord, God split that nation into two, uh, Israel and Judah, two separate nations, but all were the big you know, people of God, Israel, at one point. So all the prophecies are directed there, except for a few that go to surrounding nations. So it helps us as we observe and as we read and as we interpret to, help, to kind of get that sense of what's happening there. Um, the prophetic books are mainly anthologies, meaning like they're collections of speeches, oracles, many narratives, those kinds of things, right? So they're, they're really difficult to outline um, or analyze in terms of like a flow of thought because a lot of it is like, you know, Isaiah, what he prophesied, what he said, what he heard, what visions he got, and it's kind of collected together in this way that's very useful to us, but also very difficult for, um, you know, preacher types to kind of put into an outline that flows together. Um, and so uh, we, we just kind of keep an eye on that whole thing. Now, um, Now, uh, number four, prophetic literature is rich in imagery and figures of speech. So remember now what we said about poetry, much of poetic literature is framed as, um, or prophetic literature is framed as poetry. So a lot of that, what we're saying, you know, a third of the Bible is poetry. That's because so much of prophetic literature is also poetic. And so rich imagery, rich figures of speech. So think of what we just read in Isaiah 5, right? Um, there's this uh, painting of a of a vineyard and fruit and a vine dresser that's coming looking for fruit. And he's getting um, not these good grapes, but these wild grapes instead. And he's cared for and hoed and, and cultivated this vineyard of his people Israel, but he keeps finding them not producing as he wants them to. And how do we know that that's Israel? Well, it, he basically says like, look, this is my... 
vineyard. This is what I do. I'm telling this parable. And then in verse seven, he goes on to explain that the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is this house of Judah. And so he kind of says it clearly at the end. Now, there's also these really interesting um, poetic elements and figures of speech in here as well. And so verse seven, the vineyard of the house, uh, vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah and his pleasant planning. And look at what he says, behold, uh, he, he came looking for justice, but behold, bloodshed. Now, obviously in English, it doesn't really work, um, but I have a footnote here in my ESV that says um, that the Hebrew words for justice and bloodshed sound alike. So that's our English translators trying to help us. Hey, there's something in the Hebrew here that kind of stands out. And conveniently, most translations will put a footnote that lets us know that. And so what that, what that actually looks like is the words for justice and bloodshed. Justice is mishpat and uh, bloodshed is mishpach, okay? Mishpat and mishpach, okay? And I'm sure I butchered the pronunciation, but the idea is he's saying, I came looking for justice, behold, bloodshed, right? I came looking for mishpat and I found mishpach, right? And you're you're like, that's a cool use of language. Now, again, I came looking for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And I have another footnote there, and it says the Hebrew words for righteousness and outcry sound alike, okay? And so if you look at that, righteousness is sadakah, and outcry is sa'aka, okay? So God's saying, I came looking for sa'aka and I found sa'aka, you know? And so again, like they didn't need to do this, right? They didn't need to do this, but it's just showing us how rich in figures of speech and imagery and, you know, resonance and assonance and all those kinds of things are there in the text just being used and trying to give us a um, uh, explanation of that or a, a fuller experience of it, I guess. And again, um, you know, that's not something you're going to read in your English text, but there's footnotes for that in most English translations. And so when you read along and you see something like that, wow, just let that deepen your experience a little bit. And and that, that counts as you kind of observing what's there in the text, okay? Um, the fifth uh, kind of t- uh, na- you know feature of prophetic literature is that it's spoken in the midst of a specific historical and covenantal context. So remember what we said about the law. It's it's under this Mosaic covenant, okay? And and God made this covenant with Israel where you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. But if you follow these laws, you're going to be blessed. If you don't follow them, you're going to f- experiencing these curses and you're going to go into exile and all those kinds of things. The same dynamic is happening in prophetic literature where these are, these are God's people, right? Israel and Judah, God's people. And they've agreed, they've made this covenant. They're going to live under the law of God. And, and so they're they're there and they're living under this covenant. And so um, remember that like these are words, so as we read these prophetic uh, Old Testament passages, these are words that are spoken to a nation that was bound by the specific covenant to God, okay? So Deuteron- Deuteronomy emphasizes this whole thing of like, if you obey, you're going to go into this land that I'm giving you, this promised land, you're going to be blessed in it. If you disobey, you're going to be taken out of there and you're going to go into aftermath. And so these written, these these like prophetic books are written kind of to a nation that's on the verge, either just about to or just have having gone into this exile and experiencing the curses. A lot of the, the earlier ones are trying to call them back from the edge to, to obey God and return to his law. And a lot of the later ones are like, okay, so now you've disobeyed God and you're in exile. What do we do with that? Um, and finally, last feature I want to point out here about prophetic literature is that it speaks with a fairly uniform message. There's a fairly uniform message throughout the whole thing. And this helps me immensely as I'm reading because it's easy to get lost. I mean, there's so there's so much and it can go on for chapter after chapter and you kind of lose like what's happening. So kind of recognizing how uniform the message is um, can really help us. So, um, so here's what here's what's going on. The prophets point out the disobedience of Israel and Judah and call them to repentance. Like that's the main thing. Okay, 
And the few major offenses of disobedience for Israel and Judah are this. Um, one is idolatry. So they're turning to other gods. They're engaging in idolatry, just as the other nations around them did, okay? Um, the second big offense that they're getting called out for in these prophetic books is justice. They're turning their backs on the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, and so they're getting called out for that. And the third is uh, dead religious rituals, okay, where they just are going through the motions of offering sacrifices and their heart isn't really on God or loving and serving him and his people, okay? And so pretty much all, like all of the prophets are just God sending these prophets to his disobedient people and saying, repent of your idolatry, repent of your injustice, repent of your dead religious rituals. And so it's that over and over again from a lot of different angles, from different people in different settings. And so that helps immensely as you're reading. You can kind of expect that that's going to be it. And when you see something deviating from that, that helps you pay more attention to what's going on there. Uh, and so when, when Israel and Judah hear these calls to repent and they don't, the promised judgment, okay? And those become then the most scathing parts of the prophetic book. Some really scary imagery is used. And yet, even through that, you find throughout the prophets, there's these moments of hope that are held out of a coming restoration. God's going to come back to his people. He's going to pull their hearts back to himself. And, um, and after the judgment, you're going to experience um, some hope in life and all those kinds of things. All right, so that's kind of how the prophetic books work. Now, here's a few tips for reading through. First, stop, start by considering the historical and the covenantal context, okay? So ask, is the book I'm reading, is it written before, during, or after the exile? Now, that might be kind of hard to answer. I, you literally can answer those questions by reading the book itself. That's all scholars are doing is just reading the book itself and trying to figure out, does it fit before or after? But a good study Bible. Um, I love the ESV study Bible. It's a great one, a lot of great notes, and it'll have chapter introductions or book introductions that'll kind of explain, here's roughly when this book was most likely written. Here's why we think that. And it'll help you kind of place, okay, is this to a nation that's on the verge of going into exile, like taken out of the promised land? Or is it to a nation that's already in there? Or are they right? You know, how, how does it work? That's great. Great questions to ask. You want to ask if the book you're reading is speaking to Israel, to Judah, or to some other nation, okay? And almost all of them will say that right at the beginning of the book and, and honestly, typically throughout the book as well. Good questions to ask. Um, is your particular passage giving a message of hope or of judgment? Great question to ask, right? And you'll, you'll find that pretty clearly in each one. So um, to try to interpret these books without references to this kind of like unique historical situation really leads us um, to misread the prophets, okay? And so we have, you know, we have things like um, you know, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, such a cool passage. Um, I love it so much, but there's the whole thing about like, if my people who are called by my name will repent, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll come and I'll heal their land, right? So that's beautiful truth. Absolutely true, right? But what's happening is we're, we're reading that, uh, a, a statement to a nation that is like, God's coming to people. I'm going to put you in the land. That was a, a huge part of it. And you see that repeated so many times. I'm going to put you in the land. But if you disobey me, you're going to go out of the land. And then, but here's the thing. If you repent and come back to me, I'm going to listen and I'm going to heal you and I'm going to return you to your land, heal your land, like bring you back to your land. And then we take Jeremiah 29, 11. And, and look, I'm not saying it's wrong, but we're like, oh, okay, well, if my people, America, um, you know, will pray and, and repent, then I'll listen to them and I'll heal their land, America, right? And now that there's certainly plenty of truth to that, right? Why shouldn't we as people... Um, pray and ask God to heal um, our nation and ourselves and all those kinds of things. We just have to acknowledge that it was written in a different context to different people. So it's for us, not to us or about us, right? And so we um, we kind of pick up those things and it adds a depth to it. And even if we want to still apply it to America, you have to make those interpretive decisions when we get to the interpretation and application phases. 
Um, but it helps us to keep uh, stick and stick keep in mind to stick with the original context as we kind of observe what's going on there. Okay. Um, second, we want to feel and visualize the imagery that's used. Now, this was true of poetry in general. I'm saying it's it's true, and maybe more so even in the context of prophecy. A lot of times we jump to try to make the imagery literal. Okay, and so just as it would be insane to think, um, you know, we're reading. Uh, Psalm 46, and we're picturing God as a tower. God is a tower, right? Sometimes when we come to some of these end times prophecies, we start taking imagery really literally, and it's really not meant to be. So feel the imagery, sense it, try to picture yourself standing amongst it. Um, the, the, the imagery is rich, it's powerful, okay? So enter, enter into that imagery, get a feel for what's going on. And, and I think really only after we've experienced the weight of the imagery are we going to be able to decide like which elements are meant to be literal or not, Okay. Um, third, we want to ask uh, what the prophetic imagery would have conveyed to the original audience. Okay, so who's who's listening to this? Would this imagery and would this message have made them afraid? Would it have made them like want to repent? Would it make them hopeful? Would it make them feel comforted? Those are the questions to ask. How would it have hit them originally? And my last point here on tips for reading is um, ask what we can learn about God by the way he speaks to his people and the surrounding nations in the prophetic passages, right? So there's so much in the prophets to learn about God by paying attention to his justice, his wrath, his His faithfulness to his promises, and also like his mercy and his forgiveness and his relationship to his people, those kinds of things. So paying attention to all that helps. Now, before we wrap up this um, prophetic literature, I just want to point out there's a couple of kind of key interpretive issues that run throughout the prophets that uh, a lot of scholars disagree on today and throughout the the centuries, of course. Um, But one key question is like, how literally should the imagery be taken? Okay. So when when there's talks about God bringing um, Israel, his people back to their land, is he talking like super literally or not, right? Um, Those are great questions to ask and people will debate them, but those are just kind of key things that We're going to have a hard time figuring out ourselves, but we want to wrestle with it, and we might develop really firm convictions on it over time, and that's a great thing if you do. Um, The second question is, are the prophecies regarding Israel's future primarily fulfilled in the church, or are they awaiting a fulfillment to the Jews in the future? Okay, this is hugely important and hugely controversial. So when these promises are made about a time when God's law is going to be written on the hearts of his people, he's going to pull them back from exile, he's going to return them, he's going to heal them, take their heart of stone, it says in Ezekiel 36, and give them a heart of flesh and, um, you know, heal their land and all those kinds of things, right? Um, When God speaks like that, there's times when the New Testament authors say, oh, this is what God prophesied before. And he's talking about not necessarily the nation of Israel, but individual Jewish people and individual Gentile people. Um, a key passage here is Romans 11 that talks about Israel as a, as a, as a um, tree that has branches grafted off, seems to be Israelite branches, and then other branches grafted in. Um, and that will seem to be Gentile. But then, you know, he talks about how all Israel will be saved. And there's just a lot of um, different interpretation and conviction regarding is there a future for the nation of Israel as a whole, or is this speaking of individual hearts? And I I won't even begin to try to answer that here. I have definitely thoughts and opinions on it, but um, I just pointed out to, to, to raise the question of like, this is a big interpretive issue and pay attention to it as you're wrestling through these passages. Um, and then finally, you know, when, when there's predicted elements, predicted events, when are they going to occur? That's a huge interpretive issue running through all the prophets. So 
keep in mind, like when the prophets looked ahead, they saw the events, but rarely are they like precise on the timing, right? And I think sometimes they conflate like multiple actions of grace or judgment as though it's all happening at once, right? So I think sometimes Isaiah will look ahead into the future and he's seeing like things related to the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ and kind of talking about them in a single passage, um, but it's not necessarily meant to say this is all happening at the same time. Tricky, but it's important. So, But I think bottom line, if we focus too much on the timing, the precise timing, setting a timeline, we can kind of like neuter the prophets. And we re- redirect the focus from the power of the imagery to like some benign timeline that we create. Um, the, the prophets really are not meant to create a firm timeline for us. They're meant to challenge and call us to repentance, call us to trust in God, those kinds of things. All right, so there's the prophets. Um, I've got one more brief genre here, and this is wisdom literature. Um, super important as well, um, but uh, but it, we won't spend quite as much time on it and a little bit less controversial in some ways. There's just a lot of issues that arise in the prophets. So for the wisdom literature, this is our last one. I'm going to read uh, Proverbs 5, 1 to 6. Um, such a powerful passage um, that is, I think, pretty typical of, the pro- of uh, Proverbs here. So um, here it says, Proverbs 5, 1 to 6. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps toward the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. So here is um, a great example of kind of proverbial literature, which is a subset of wisdom literature. So wisdom literature, all overall, we're talking about Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. That tends to be how this gets grouped together. So features of wisdom literature, um, each of those is a little bit different, but wisdom literature focuses less on direct commands and more on like wise sayings to live by. Okay. So sometimes the Proverbs are stated like direct, com- direct commands, but typically it's, it's, um, it's giving you like wise sayings to live by, to shape your character, to kind of help you live a wise and holy life is kind of the idea. So wisdom literature, the second thing here is wisdom literature pushes us to reflect. And by doing that, it forms our character. So it pushes us to, to reflect. And by that reflection, through that reflection, it helps us to kind of form our character. And, and now different parts of the wisdom literature do this in different ways. So Proverbs tends to give us the norms for wisdom literature. Uh, Proverbs gives us like the norms that like saying like sayings that hold true in general, but like typically it's not like they're without any exception. Okay. So there's like a famous statement that, you know, where he says, um, uh, don't answer a fool according to, fo- to folly unless you, lest you like get trapped in his sin, but answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So do you answer a fool according to his folly or do you not? It literally tells us to do both. The point is wise sayings to live by you know, uh, uh, there are exceptions of course to it, but like, um, you know, and, and even things like, um, you know, the, the, the righteous person will be blessed in what he does, right. That, that comes a ton in the Proverbs. It's giving us a norm, like something that's like, this is generally true. Live your life as though this is true, right. That the, the, the holy person, the righteous person will be blessed, but we all know there's examples that that doesn't happen. Right. So for example, Job, then Proverbs gives us the norm. Job, then gives us a major exception to the norm of the Proverbs, right? Sometimes godly people don't prosper. Like that's kind of the point of 
Job is it's like, here's a righteous man that experiences all this tribulation, not because he fell into sin, but because he was righteous. And it's wrestling with, okay, what do we do when uh, this proverbial wisdom doesn't hold true in a specific case? Um, That's a big part of it. And also a lot of what Job does is reveal who God is to us and those kinds of things. Um, Ecclesiastes, interestingly then, comes in from a different angle, and it kind of explores life from two perspectives, Um, like a Jewish proverbial approach, like we're saying, like the godly will be blessed and all that. And then on the flip side, it it juxtaposes that with a different perspective of kind of like a Greek autonomous reasoning approach, like what makes sense to me when I observe with my eyes and I use my own reason, okay? And you see those two things side by side throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes, and um, it helps us to like weigh each as we journey. And I think eventually um, the preacher of Ecclesiastes comes to a, uh, a deeper understanding of God and what it means to live in this world. Um, and then finally, Song of Solomon very simply just, I think, delights in the, um, the idea of romantic love. Uh, marriage and sex and all of that. I think it's a beautiful depiction of that. And so wisdom literature is just kind of helping us like form our character by pushing us to reflect in these different ways. Okay. And each of them does it in its own way. Um, And so last thing to kind of mention here, wisdom literature often follows the exact same method as poetry, right? So there's parallelism, there's structure, there's imagery. And we can see that with like you know, the, the lips that are dripping honey and the speech that's smooth like oil and, you know, but like feet that go down to death and those kinds of things. It's using imagery to um, push us into a reflection on some deeper truths. So tips for reading wisdom literature. These are going to be very similar to poetry. I won't spend a long time, but first of all, again, feel the imagery presented. Okay. So when you, when you picture this forbidden woman that's pictured in Proverbs 5, um, picture the seductive side of it, right? It's, it's literally asking us to do that, I think. And then picture the scary, frightening side of legs that go down to death and things like that. And so um, picture the imagery, feel it. Um, allow yourself to be drawn in beyond just like trying to get some moral out of the story. Um, second, consider the wisdom offered in each statement, right? Um, just consider like, man, okay, that, okay, this is given to me as a wise statement. Why is this wise? You know, let me weigh that and wrestle with it a bit. Third, imagine how your life would look if your character were formed by this piece of wisdom. I love that. I love that. If, if, I, if my character is going to be formed by this statement, how would my life look if I took this seriously, if I embodied what this is saying? Fourth, uh, don't try to hold the proverb as a universal or as a promise that you can hold over God's head. Okay, So when it says the godly are going to be um, blessed, right? Um, that's great. Hang on to that. It's, it's good. It's true. It's um, profound. It's wise. It should shape the way that we live. But it's not like some blank check that God writes us of, if you do this, I will do this. Um, God just doesn't work like that. And even within the Proverbs and the rest of the wisdom literature, there's indications that that's not what God's trying to do. And so don't try to hold it like some universal or promise that you can hold over God's head, like, God, you've got to do this for me. Uh, when we read through Ecclesiastes, I, I think a good tip there is just follow the preacher on his journey, like weigh the experiences of life along with him, um, and then weigh that against some of the proverbial commands that I think he gives in there um, at the same time. Uh, with Job, I think we're, we're meant to like feel the bitterness and the unpredictability of life, feel the foolishness of the the um, wisdom offered by his friends, right? I mean, it was, in many cases, great advice, but just so... Um, ham-fisted in its application to to poor Job. And so you just kind of weigh all that and then come to the realizations that God offers to Job at the end of the book. Um, 
And then for Song of Songs, Song of Songs, I'd say exactly the same thing as I said before. Just delight in the romantic side of love. Like use it, use it to help us see. Like man, God's created human relationships to function this way. How beautiful is that? And and certainly the, in Song of Solomon, there are things that can point us to God and His love for His people. But I think primarily it's just written to um, rejoice in in the love that God created. Okay, so there you go. So there are. Um, five Old Testament genres that we looked at. And again, now this is to, to kind of just resituate it before we break, um, resituating it here. This is saying, as we observe what's happening in a passage, we sit with it, we're going to observe what's it saying, what's it not saying, um, what's really happening here. And as we get ourselves ready to then interpret, what does this mean? Um, for me, looking at these genres is a really important piece of that because it's us looking at it and say, okay, well, let's, let's, the observations I make, let's kind of take into account how, how poetry works. That'll help me be more insightful as I observe. And then it'll help me to make better decisions as I interpret. So there you go. Five Old Testament genres. Um, next session, we'll jump right back and we'll come in with a few New Testament genres. And that's going to help us kind of process how uh, all that works. And then we'll be ready to jump in to the interpretation phase.